continue this morning our study in the book of Yehuda. We're working our way through this little epistle. We've said over and over this was written by the half-brother of our Lord Yeshua. And this book is about apostasy. That's what Jude is talking about. He's warning the believers about apostasy. He's warning them not to forsake the faith. And in verse 4, he talks about the sin of these apostates. That they're abusing the grace of God. And he talks about the fact that the Tanakh has written about the judgment of apostates. In other words, it's written in there, it's been written in the past, that apostates will be judged. And then keeping with his use of triads, Jude uses three past judgments of God on rebellion in different groups. He talks about, first of all, about the Israelites and their sin, the judgment on apostate Israel. In verse 6, we're going to look at today, is judgment on the apostate angels. In verse 7, we see, we will see Yahweh's judgment on apostate Gentiles. Now, in verse 5, we looked at the judgment of God on the unfaithful Israelites. And just, you got to think about this for a moment. These people who were judged. Think of all they experienced. Think of all they went through, all they saw. They're in Egypt. They're crying out to God for help from slavery. Along comes Moses and said, Yahweh sent me to deliver you. And they watched the ten plagues take place. You know, I read that just last week again. And it's just so amazing you know that, you know, the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, if he didn't, Pharaoh would have been begging them to go. I mean, just think of what's happening. This guy, you know, something's very unusual about Pharaoh because the place is being torn to shreds. There's nothing left. Just livestock are being destroyed. All the vegetation is being destroyed. Everything's happening. They're watching all this happen. And the children of Israel sitting in the comfort watching it all happen. All right, then they get to leave. And they watch, and they don't just walk out unguided. There's a pillar leading them, a fire and a, a, by night and smoke, a cloud to smoke by day, and they're following this pillar. They get to the Red Sea, it parts, and they walk through. And then they're on the other side, and oh no, here comes Pharaoh. Well, they close up and kills them all. So they sing, and they're rejoicing. Then they get to the wilderness, and they're like, no water. And they should have just folded their arms and said, man, I can't wait to see what God's going to do here. This is cool. What are you going to do? Where's the water coming from? But no, they start, they were just like us. We're Israelites. There's no doubt about that. We murmur and complain every bit as much as they do. They start griping and he has Moses smack the rock. Water comes out of this rock to feed, to take care of over two million people. That's a lot of water. It's not like a drinking fountain, the little things coming out. Okay. He smacked this rock and water just gushed out. All right. So think of all they saw and then they won't believe God. They won't trust him. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Well, Jude moves from there to apostate angels. Well, if Israel fell in spite of all they knew, think about what the angels fell from. You think Israel saw some stuff? The angels were there when God created the world. They fall. All right, we began to look last week at verse 6, and we talked about angels. We saw that the term angel is derived from the Hebrew word malach and the Greek word angelos. Both of them mean messenger, both words, all right? Now, the translators, they have been nice to us, and they translated it as angel when they think it means a divine messenger, and they just left it as messenger when they see it as a human messenger. So the use of malach or angelos may or may not be referring to some sort of supernatural being 
We have to determine its meaning from the context. Now, if you have Young's literal translation, which I suggest everybody at least have a copy of that, you've got to follow along reading that with your other readings. They don't translate the word at all or try to guess on it. They just, every use is his messenger. Every use is messenger. Because they said, we're going to pretend you're smart. We're going to pretend you have a brain and we're going to let you figure it out instead of translating it for you and trying to help you out, which I appreciate. Make me think. Make me look at the context. Messenger. What does that mean? Because we automatically, we hear angel, we think of, you know, supernatural being. Well, that's not always what the text does say, so it's good to allow us to think of it a little bit. All right. Now, last week I said there's some who see Malach and Anglos as always referring to human messengers. They, they never see it referring to supernatural beings. Now, to me, that's really naturalizing the Bible. You're, you're removing the supernatural. I don't see that. I see half of the references of Malach in the Tanakh as referring to supernatural beings, and I see most all of the references in the New Testament of Anglos referring to supernatural beings. So I guess I could say this, I believe in angels. You ever ever heard Ernest Angley say that? <laughs> it kind of bothers me when I say it, because I've heard him say it. So I believe in angels, you know. I believe they're supernatural beings. I believe they reside in heaven, and I believe they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. They're here to help the saints. They're here to judge the wicked. Now, in the Tanakh, angels are depicted foremost as serving the Most High. In Orthodox Judaism, they remain preeminently God's ministers. Jewish apocalyptic literature knows between four and nine echelons of angelic authorities. They rank these things, you know. And they, and, and matter of fact, in the Testament of Adam, pseudepigraphal work, they list nine different echelons of angels. And I believe there's different ranks of angels. I don't understand all they are. I see three in Scripture. I'm not sure where they get nine from, but, you know, I think there's definitely. We think of angels, we think of angels, but I think there's ranks. You've got cherubim, seraphim, and then I think you've got the sons of God, the watchers above all of those, all right? Well, in Jude's second example here of apostasy and judgment, he brings in these and mentions these sinning messengers. So let's examine six and see if he if it helps us determine if he's talking about supernatural beings or if he's just talking about human messengers. All right. Verse six says, "In angels who did not keep their own domain, that's messenger, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment." Of the great day. All right, let's look at the parallel text to this. Remember, 2 Peter is a parallel text to what we're reading in the book of Jude here. 2 Peter 2 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. All right, now let's compare these two. What Jude says is they didn't keep their own domain, they abandoned their proper abode. Peter simply says they sinned. Okay? So whatever. Not keeping their domain was and abandoning their boat is sinning. All right, they sin. That's very clear. That's what Peter's trying to let us know. They sin. So, what exactly was their sin? That's the question. Well, Jude tells us they sinned and that they did not keep their own domain. Keep here is a translation of the Greek word tereo, which means to keep watch upon, to guard, to watch over, to protect. It refers to watching or guarding something which belongs to you innately. Now, there's an interesting play on words here in the Greek. Both these words here 
are tereo. The angels didn't keep their domain, but Yahweh kept them in bonds. All right, so he's playing on the word keeper. And it's the same word we saw in Jude 1.1 that describes believer security. We are kept in Yeshua the Christ. So Yahweh keeps us in security. He keeps them in bonds. Because they didn't keep. So there's a lot of keeps going on here, but you understand the, the difference here. Alright, why did they not keep their own domain? Well, domain here is the word arche. Vincent's word study says, the word originally signifies beginning. If you're familiar with arche, you know that's what has to talk about beginnings. And so frequently in the New Testament, mostly in the Gospels, Acts, Hebrews, Catholic Epistles, and Apocalypse, from this comes a secondary meaning of sovereignty, dominion, magistracy, these English people, and being the beginning of first place of power. So mostly by Paul as principalities and rulers. So the Jews regarded the angels as having dominion over earthly creatures. And the angels are often spoken of in the New Testament as arche. Speaking of Christ, Paul says this, he's far above all rule. And their rule is R.K., so R.K. would be appropriate to designate their power, which they forsook. Simply put, they didn't stay where they belong. Now Jude goes on to tell us about their sin by saying that they abandoned their proper abode. Now Weist, on proper abode, writes this. He says, proper is idios, which means one's own private, personal, unique possession. They abandon their proper abode. The verb abandon is erisin tense, which refers to a once-for-all act. This was apostasy with a vengeance. They abandoned forever. The word abode here is from the Greek word oiketerion, which means habitation. This word oiketerion is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used by Paul in uh, for 2 Corinthians 5.2. He says, For indeed, in this house we groan, Longing to be clothed with our oiketerion from heaven. So this dwelling place, this abode, this, this is connected with heaven. And I think heaven was the abode of the angels. And I think he's talking about supernatural beings here who abode was heaven and they abandoned that. Now the angels were created perfect. They were created holy. They were created pure. They were ministering spirits. And they dwelt in the presence of Yahweh in heaven. There was no sin in them. They had, they had this as their first estate. Dwelling in the very presence, fellowshipping with Yahweh. But they lost that habitation of eternal blessedness when they sinned. Now Adam Clark says, one thing is certain. The angels who fell must have been in a state of probation capable of either standing or falling, as Adam was in paradise. Now, you ever heard about this probation that the angels have been in? I've read a lot, of, a lot of theologians hold this, a very common view among theologians. The angels were in a prohibitionary state, like Adam. They sinned, and so the ones who sinned are locked into their sin. The ones who didn't are locked into their righteousness. Now, that sounds nice, but I've never seen a verse to back it up. Okay? And you kind of want a verse to go with theology. All right? So people are giving you theology and they don't have verses. Maybe you better not, you know, look to maybe register that in the back of your mind somewhere and keep looking for you find some verses, you know. Basically, what they're saying is the angels did sin once, but they can't do it anymore. I don't know about that. I don't know. 
The Bible really doesn't say. All right? Uh, obviously, I agree with the rest. They were capable of either standing or falling <laughs> because they fell. All right? But are they still lo- are they locked in now? Can they not leave? I mean, I don't know. But if I was an angel and I saw what happened to the angels who fell, I'd say, I'm staying where I'm at. <laughs> kind of nice here in the fellowship with God. You know, because angels are not redeemable. They don't get a chance. You know, if they fall, that's it. They're done. All right. So what is Jude talking about? What was the sin of these angels? Well, there's basically three views. There's probably more, but I could find three that at least you want to even talk about. All right. Not that you really do, but all right. First of all, the first view says this is referring to one unique and special thing that we don't know anything about. <laughs> That's a view. We don't know anything. We don't know what they're talking about. It's just a very unique thing, something no one knows anything about. Anything you see anything wrong with that view? Yeah. <laughs> this view doesn't fit the context of verse six at all. Because verse 6 follows along the same lines of verse 5 where God had indicated that He would put them in remembrance of what they knew. You know, so they had to know it. So whatever happened to them had to be something they knew, something that He was reminding them of. We have to assume that it's very likely that what they knew was in the Tanakh. Alright? The story of the defection of Israel in verse 5 is in the Tanakh. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 is in the Tanakh. We kind of assume that this is in the Tanakh also, and they knew about it. It's in the Scriptures. All right. So, I assume it's something they're familiar with. So, And just because of the brevity of the mention, you think, they know about this. I don't have to explain it. I don't have to go in detail. Boom, just mention it. All right? Something they're familiar with. So, whatever he's dealing with here, something they knew, something that was in the Tanakh. All right, the second view is that we're dealing with the original fall of Satan and his angels. Alright? Now, I guess Satan and his angels fell, right? Because they're, you see them in the New Testament and they're causing problems. We don't see Satan is not a proper name. And in the, in the Tanakh, we don't see him as a bad guy really at all. We went through that a while back, okay? So look at Luke 10, 17 and 18 says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from, from heaven, from heaven like lightning. So he's talking about a fall here. Maybe that's what he's talking about. The fall of the devil and his angels. Another account would be in Revelation 12, 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So here we got a third of whatever this is. His tail, let me go back in, is sweeping away a third of these. So many people look at this verse and they say, this is the fall of Satan and he takes a third of the angels with him. Mm, I don't know. I'm not really convinced on that one either. All right. What's the problem with the second view? Well, those angels that Jude's talking about are where? Jude says they're kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment of the great day. Peter says they've been cast into hell and committed to pits of darkness reserved in judgment. If this referred to Satan and his angels, then they'd have to be bound at the time of the writing. And Paul wouldn't write Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. In Paul's day and in Jude's day, there was a spiritual battle going on. And if these are the angels he's fighting, they're locked up so they can't be a battle. 
And Jude says he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They're bound, they're locked up, they're dealt with. So, if that's true, this is, he's talking about this happening in a past time, so in their day they wouldn't have this battle going on. You wouldn't see all this, alright? Kept here is also toreo. It's in the perfect tense, which means at a point in time, they were kept, and that continues to be the condition. Perfect tense describes the permanence of this keeping. They're kept. They've been put in this situation of, of eternal bonds, and they're still there. As we said, this is the same word used earlier um, of the angels that didn't keep their first estate. It means to guard, to keep, watch upon, to keep in custody. In other words, God Himself is guarding and keeping in custody these angels. He threw them into Tartarus. So this can't be referring to Satan and his angels. It then says that they are being held over for judgment of the great day. Or, or they're in eternal bonds under this darkness. Literally it says, in everlasting imprisonment under the authority of darkness. We see similar language in Second Peter. He says, but they are cast into hell. Hell here is the Greek word, tartarao, and it's, it's the, they, the ancients saw it as below Sheol. Sheol was under the earth. This is below Sheol. This is a really bad place. Okay, <laughs> And uh, the Greeks saw this as uh, uh, ancient deities. This is a place of extreme torment. It's a bad place. All right. So Jude says God has reserved them for the judgment of the great day. This refers to the judgment, I believe, called the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. We see that in Revelation 20, 10, 11. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also. And they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne upon whom sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. Alright? So Satan and his demons are not kept in eternal bonds under darkness at the time of Jude's writing. So Jude can't be referring to the fall of Satan and his angels. So this has to be something else. I don't think it's referring to something they don't know about. And I don't think it's referring to the false Satan. So it has to be something very special that's recorded in the Tanakh. It had to be something that was so severe that God took these angels and put them in chains right away. The third view, which I believe is the correct view, is that Jude reflects the ancient Jewish Christian understanding that identifies these fallen angels as the rebellious sons of God. Alright, now like I said earlier, the sons of God are a class of angels. They are, I think, ranking above all the other angels. We think of angels just all the same, but they are, they are ranked. These sons of God were, were special angels who had fellowship with God. They were in His inner circle. They were His divine counsel. And people, when I say divine counsel, I don't mean God went to them and asked them, what do I need to do here? That's not the idea, okay? This is just a group, the fellowship with a family group that He shared with. All right? We see this in Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took them wise for themselves, whoever they choose. Now you're familiar with this because we just taught on this not long ago. But Jude's nonchalant reference to these rebellious angels just gives us the idea they knew what was going on here. These people knew what was talking about. All right, This was a very familiar teaching in the first century. Robert Newman has analyzed the history of interpretation of Genesis 6 to show that this supernatural interpretation of the sons of God being heavenly angelic beings 
was virtually unanimous in the ancient world until the first century after Christ. And it really was the dominant view, I think, until the third century. So just, this is what everybody believed. All the Jews believed this. This was not a strange, you know, view to them. Now the sons of God here, which is B'nai Elohim in Hebrew, is only found six times in the Hebrew text. If you have the New American Standard, you'll only find it five times. Okay? If you have the ESV, you'll find it six times. It's, it's twice in Genesis 6, three times in Job, once in Deuteronomy 32.8. And it always is referencing divine beings, never humans. As I, as I said, these were special beings. These were Yahweh's counsel, his family, basically, that he fellowshiped with. You know what's really cool when you get to Romans 8? And it says, those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Believers, you and I, by virtue of the new birth, are now sons of God, and we are in that fellowship position with Yahweh. But let's move on here. Look at uh, Job 38. Uh, again, this B'nai Elohim only used six times. One of them is used here in Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Yahweh's talking to Job. You know, Job's questioning God. Why? Do I? Okay, let me ask him. Where were you when I created everything? Uh, well, I really wasn't here. All right. Tell me, he says, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, you know, Kath, listen to this. The Lord is being sarcastic here. Okay. This is, this is divine sarcasm. Job, where were you? You know, obviously. Who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Well, here we got the morning stars and the sons of God. These are names of divine council members. These are names of the angels. And some folks see sons of God, they say these are humans here. How? How are there humans standing by watching Yahweh create the world? Were these different humans than us humans who got created later at some point in time? I, I need an explanation on this. How are these sons of God? And again, it's a, it's a very limited term. Used only six times. B'nai Elohim. And I believe that all uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. This is... Really significant, people. Elohim is only used of those in the spirit world. So if they're called Elohim, they're not they're not in the physical realm. They are spirit beings. And I believe that the key to understanding Genesis 6, you really want to deal with Genesis 6 and figure it out, understand the term Elohim. Do a study on Elohim. It's only used 2,606 times. So look up every one of them. Exam, I'm serious. You know, this is, this is what Bible study is about. It takes work, okay? Don't believe what somebody else says. Get it out. You can do it yourself. Click, click, click. It takes some time, but, you know, this, we're such a fast food world. We want everything. Boom, boom. Give it to me. Give it to me now. Explain it to me. No, look it up. 2606, that's in the New American Standard. Alright? The term Elohim is the plural of El. El means mighty. El means power. It's a name of God. God is the mighty one. He's the powerful one. Elohim is plural, but a lot of people say, well, Elohim is plural, so there's more than one. Now listen, that's because they don't understand Hebrew at all. This is what grammarians call a morphological plural. Okay? That means if you look at it, it looks like a plural because Hebrew nouns that end in I am are plural. All right? 
But in most cases throughout the Tanakh, the meaning is singular. We know this from Hebrew grammar. Now, Elohim is like our English word deer or sheep. How do you know if deer is singular or plural? It's by the grammar of the sentence which it's used in. I shot a deer. That's singular, right? I saw a bunch of deer. That's plural. Well, in the very first use of Elohim is in Genesis 1.1. It says, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim. And bara identifies the subject of the verb as masculine singular. So you'd look at Elohim's plural, but it's used as a singular. And the very first time it's used, it's used of Yahweh, Elohim. All right. Now, many pink people think that Elohim is another name of Yahweh. You know, you can call him Elohim, you can call him Yahweh. Elohim is used in Scripture for many others beside Yahweh in the spirit world. But it's only used of those in the spirit world. All right? Yahweh is called Elohim 2,000 times. And in, just as it is in Genesis 1.1. It's a reference to him 2,000 times. We know that Yahweh is called Elohim, but he's not the only one called Elohim. Elohim is also used in Scripture for the gods of foreign nations. Now, I know a lot of people say, God, there's no real other gods. You know, only God is God. There's no real other gods. Well, hang with me for a second here, okay? Look at 1 Kings 11, 33. Because they have forsaken me, Yahweh speaking, and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes, my ordinance, as his father David did. All right, you hear goddess and God in this text, are all, they're all Elohim. And they're used for those who are foreign gods. Now, for those of you who think that Yahweh is the only God, there's no other gods, this is all just talking about fake stuff, and there's no real... Look at this verse that I think you're all familiar with, right? Exodus 20, the giving of the law. It says, Then Elohim spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. He says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other Elohims before me. Well, there is no other Elohims. What are you worried about? Why waste your breath saying this stuff, right? The text in yellow is the Hebrew Anaki Yahweh Eloheka. Now, Eloheka is your God, your Elohim. He is saying that He alone belongs to Israel. I'm your Elohim. Other people, they have their Elohim. I am Israel's Elohim. Other nations had other Elohim. Look at Deuteronomy 32.8. Alright? When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you have a different translation there, it would say the sons of Israel. Very bad translation there. Septuagint says sons of the angels. Uh, there's a lot of textual evidence. We, we've gone into that before. But chapter 10 of Genesis which is called the Table of Nations, is the backdrop of this statement here in Deuteronomy 32. 
Yahweh is responsible for the creation and the placement of the nations. Mankind was divided into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel. And these 70 nations were each given under a son of God. Now it's important to note when you read this table of nations, the 70 of them in Genesis 10, Israel's not found in the, in the table of nations. Why? There was no Israel. They didn't exist at this time in Genesis 10. There's no Israel at all. What happens at the Tower of Babel is man has been disobedient. From the very beginning, Yahweh entered into a covenant with man. Man violated the covenant. Man keeps sinning. Listen, we got to understand that before we get to Exodus 20 and we get the law, these people had an understanding. All right? When Noah's entering the ark, he's taking clean and unclean animals. How did he know that? He didn't get to Exodus yet. How did he know which ones are clean? You see all of them sacrifices, you see things going on. They had an understanding of Yahweh. He was making himself known to the people, but they kept rejecting him. They, kept, they didn't want to go their own way. The, the height of the rejection was the building of Tower of Babel. It's a ziggurat. They're saying, we want to build something high enough so the gods can come down to us. And there was always a temple built with a ziggurat. The temple, they're worshiping the god, the ziggurat, so the god can get down. He's a little bit on the weak side. He needs some help, you know. So he can get down and come to the temple and they can worship him and they worship him because they want things from this certain God, all right? So, because of their disobedience, Yahweh divides them up and he gives them under the control of these lesser gods. They were to worship these lesser gods because, listen, Yahweh's basically saying, I'm done with you. I'm done with your disobedience. I'm done with, you know, I keep coming to you and you just keep rejecting me. So man continues to reject Yahweh and serve these other gods. So Yahweh says, you like those gods? You want to just keep serving? Go ahead. They're yours. You get them. You, you get to serve them. I'm done with you. And what happens in chapter 12? So Yahweh's done with people and he sits back and says, I'm finished with all you know. He calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to start all over. I'm going to start all over. He called Abraham and he starts a new family. He turned over these other nations, all of them, to lesser gods who in fact work for him. Remember, they're always under Yahweh. Yahweh's sovereign. He's the only sovereign being. These all work for him. They're created by him. They work for him. They're under his control. And someday he had a plan. He was going to bring these nations back, but he's going to let them see, let them enjoy these other gods for a while. All right? So now he is Israel's God. The rest of the nations have their gods. Look what Yahweh says in Deuteronomy 4.19. This is an important verse here. And beware. He's talking to Israel. Beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars and the host of heaven. Now, this host of heaven is used throughout the scripture for gods, all right, angels. And be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Now, watch what he says. Those which Yahweh, your Elohim, has allotted to the nations. He says, Israel, listen, don't you worship those gods. I gave those to the nations. So Israel, don't you worship them. You worship me. Those are their gods. All right. The host of heaven refers to sentient, created spiritual beings which reside in heaven. Notice here that the host of heaven have been allotted. The word allotted here is the Hebrew kalak, which means appointed, assigned. Yahweh assigned the host of heaven to the peoples of the earth, meaning non-Israelites. You guys worship those gods. I'm starting over. I'm going to call the people to myself. All right. All right, so Elohim is used of the gods of foreign nations. You might not want to believe there's other gods, but let me tell you. Uh, especially, you know, here's the thing. A lot of theologians are understanding this now since 
we've got the tablets being uh, translated from Ugarit. Because Ugarit was so similar to Israel, now we're, un- we're translating these and we're seeing what they understood and we're seeing the same terms used. As g- it just opened our understanding so much to this because we're getting more insight into that culture and what was going on there. All right. So it was gods of foreign nations. It was also used as angelic watchers. We said that. The divine council. Like I said, these are high up elevated angels. Okay. They're in fellowship with God. Let's look at Psalm 82. It says, God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Bad translation, but you know, when translators are translating, they believe something. Right? You can't, you can't translate in a vacuum. You believe something. Well, both God and rulers here is Elohim. Same exact word. This is speaking, I believe, of the divine council. Alright? Then he says in verse 6, I said you are Elohim. All of you. The sons of the Most High. Alright? So they're gods. You always said you're gods, but then notice the next verse. Nevertheless, you will die like men. And fall like any one of the princes. Now, if Elohim here were men... Then how do they die like? How do men die like men? How else do men die? He's telling, I believe, these, these spiritual beings, you're done. You're going to die like a man. I'm taking away your immortality and you're gone. Because you violate the principles. You're done. He's going to judge these disobedient watchers. All right? So it stands for the gods of four nations. It's used of that. It's used of angelic watchers. It's used of demons. What? Yeah, because they're spiritual beings, right? Look at Deuteronomy 32.17. They sacrificed to demons, which were not Elohim, to Elohim, which we have not known. New Elohim, which have come lately, whom your fathers didn't dread. So here God is Elohim, God's is Elohim, so demons are called Elohim. Now here's one that may surprise you. Shouldn't because I've taught it before. But Samuel is called an Elohim. Now, doesn't that break? I mean, I said it's only used a spirit being. So how can Samuel be called an Elohim? He's dead. Okay, thank you. He's dead. He's in the spirit world now. All right, First Samuel twenty-eight thirteen. We won't go into the whole story here. I think you know the story. The witch Andor. Saul's looking for help. Help! God won't talk to me. Give me some help. So get Samuel. Get him up here. All right. So the king said to her, do not be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see Elohim coming up out of the earth. I see a divine being. Which is interesting, because he's dead. He's in the spirit world. Again, all uses of Elohim in the Tanakh refer to spiritual beings. So we got the gods of foreign nations. We got angelic watchers. We got demons. We got humans that have died. And guess what? It's used of Yahweh. We know that, right? It's used of Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of gods. And that's why when he calls him, he's the Lord of lords, King of kings, God of gods. Because there's other gods. Now, Michael Heiser, a theologian, scholar, says Elohim is a place of residence term. When you see Elohim, it means that it's used of those who are in the spirit world. They're not in the physical world. Now, for those of you who don't see sons of God in Genesis 6 as being spirit beings, you have to prove from the Tanakh that Elohim is used of men. Alright, that's your first. If you want to come up with a different understanding of Genesis 6, say this is men, sons of Seth, these are kings, whatever. You've got to show from the Tanakh that Elohim is used of men. 
Good luck. Okay? And if you can't find a human human use of Elohim, you need to admit that sons of God in Genesis 6 are spirit beings. They're angels who descended. They had sex with human women, producing this hybrid human, half-human, half-God that the Lord destroyed in the flood. Now, in attempting to find human uses of Elohim, I've heard people come to me and say, what about this? What about this? I had a preacher say, what about this verse right here? Show you you're wrong because look at here. Exodus 4.16 says, Moses was an Elohim. Well, let's read the verse. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth to you, and you will be as Elohim to him. What is that verse saying? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So it's not just me. You see it too? Huh? <laughs> They say here, Moses is called Elohim. Is he called Elohim? No. Look at this verse, okay? Deuteronomy 8.18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I command him. All right? He says he will be as a mouth to you. Deuteronomy 18.18 is telling you what a prophet is. A prophet is the mouthpiece of God. God speaks through the prophet. The prophet's nothing but a mouth. That's what he does. He speaks for God. All right? The same thing is said in Exodus 7.1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I make you as Elohim to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. All right? So he's taking, um, I will be as Elohim to Pharaoh. You will be, I'll make you as Elohim to Pharaoh, and you will, he will be your mouth. Now look at. If Moses is Elohim in this 4.16, then what's Aaron? Aaron's a mouth. If you want to take say he's really Elohim, then Aaron's just really a mouth. No, he's saying as a mouth, you'll be as Elohim. You're not going to be an Elohim, but you'll be as him because you'll be speaking and Aaron will speak for you. He'll be your prophet. It's just frustrating, people. We've got to look at it in context and got to look what it's saying. Our Elohim is there and he's calling me. Yes, he'll be as one. In what sense as? In every sense? No. Another verse that is used to question Elohim, to say this is not, this is used of rulers, they say. This is the rulers of Israel. Well, let's look at this text in Exodus 22. And again, you gotta get the context, you gotta start in 18 and work your way up here. But it says, if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him, and it's stolen from the man's house, okay? Your friend comes to you and says, hey, I need you to watch this for me, okay? Giving you some money, giving you some, you know, some things. Watch this for me. And guess what? It gets stolen. Someone breaks in your house or whatever. It's stolen. Then your friend comes back you say, hmm, it's stolen. Sorry. Okay. Well, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. Bobby, you get the thief, he's going to make up for it. But if the thief is not caught, okay, you told your friend, it's gone. I don't know, I don't know what happened to it. But no thief got caught, but the stuff's missing. Then the owner of the house shall appear before the judges, Elohim, to determine whether he laid hands on his neighbor's property. All right. Now, see, they say here, well, this is the judges of Israel, because the word judges here is Elohim. But I think the translators really did a mistake here translating this judges. All right. Take the situation. Your friend gave you stuff. The stuff's gone. So they take you for the judges, and the judges are going to determine... What happened to the stuff? How do they do that? Well, forensic evidence, right? They're going to take your DNA. and how, how are the judges going to determine? Well, if they take you before Elohim, 
Elohim will determine. And I said, you got to get the whole context here. The Faith Life Study Bible, which if you don't have the Faith Life Study Bible, is a free reference online. Get it. It is written by scholars, okay? There's some great stuff in this thing. It will really help your study. Faith Life Study Bible says this. The plural in this passage and in 21.6 may indicate that God's plural refers to the human judges of Israel, chapter 18. But this is not supported by chapter 18, where the judges are never referred to as Elohim. All the uses of Elohim in chapter 18 refer to the God of Israel. See, if judges were going to be called Elohim, you'd think that somewhere you'd see that. The English Standard Version translates this here as Elohim, God's, not judges. All right, let's move on in the text of chapter 22. It says, For every breach of trust, whether it is ox or donkey or sheep for clothing, for any lost thing about which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. All right, again, so you got these judges. We don't know what happened to this thing, so we're coming before the judges. And so you say, well, how does, if, it, if it's referring to Elohim, it's referring to God, how does God tell? How does he indicate? Well, Faith Life Study Bible says, the idea of God condemning the guilty party recalls other contexts where God's will was determined through casting lots. And he lists the scriptures here. Though the method of discerning God's will is not outlined here in the text he's talking about, God often makes his will known during a decision-making process since the scenario here is very similar to the one that follows in verse 10. We'll look at verse 10 in a minute. God's will may have been determined by an oath taken in the name of Yahweh on the presumption that God would reveal and condemn the one who took his name in vain. In other words, we're going to take these people before Elohim, not human judges, before Elohim, and they're going to take an oath. And if they're lying, they're taking the name of the Lord in vain, and the Lord's going to deal with it. We see that in 22, 10 through 11. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies, or is hurt, or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before Yahweh shall be made by the two of them. Now, it's really certain here, because it's Yahweh, it's not Elohim. All right, they're going to take an oath. That he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. All right? So here, that's, I think, the whole idea in the context. These judges, it shouldn't be translated judges, the words Elohim, and it's speaking of going before God, and the reason they do go before God is they're taking an oath. They're saying, no, I didn't, in the name of Yahweh, I didn't do that. All right? So I don't see this as referring to humans, unless these humans are somehow in the spirit world. It's a place of residence locator. Again, 2,606 of them. Look them up. Examine the context. Now, from Peter's second letter, we learn that the sin of these angels was associated with the time of Noah. That helps us a little bit, right? Because that would take us back to Genesis 6. Jude himself connects the sin with the, of the rebellious angels to that of Sodom and Gomorrah, showing it's a sexual sin. So there's all kind of connections here. Look at Jude 1.7. We're just going to mention a few things because we're going to deal with this verse by itself. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulge in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited it as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. All right. Now, here's the question. Does these here refer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah 
or does these refer to angels? If it goes back to the angels, he is linking their sin to a sexual sin. And that's Genesis 6. Now, grammar tells us that it's the angels due to gender and number agreement. Pronouns need to agree with gender, number, and case with their antecedent. The word these is from the Greek word tatos, which is masculine plural, and angels is masculine plural, but cities is feminine, doesn't agree grammatically. So he is saying that these angels indulge in gross immorality. These is referring to angels. They indulge in gross immorality. Both Peter and Jude link the sin of those fallen angels with the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is described as gross immorality. Gross immorality is ex pornuo. Now you got some idea what that means. It's got the word porn in it, okay? Ex pornuo and indicates a heightened form of sexual immorality. And the Greek word strange flesh here is heteros sarx which indicates the pursuit of something different from one's natural flesh. Now, the reference to strange flesh here in Jude cannot be a reference to homosexuality for several reasons. First, homosexuality is not the pursuit of hetero flesh, all right, or different gender. It's the pursuit of homo or same gender. Secondly, homosexual behavior involves the same human male flesh, not different flesh, as it would with angels. Thirdly, when the New Testament refers to the unnaturalness of homosexual acts, it uses the Greek phrase parafusi, which means contrary to nature. Listen, the Bible... This is a question in our society today. Let me just make it clear for you here. The Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin. Okay? If it wasn't in the Bible, logic condemns homosexuality. Okay? If it's right, the human race is done. Did you know they can't procreate? Even though they can get a marriage license now, they still can't procreate. They can take somebody else's child and raise them, but they'll never have their own kid because it doesn't work that way. And that's the end of the world. Okay? Because the world's going that way. Everyone's going that way. So pretty soon there won't be any humans, I guess. All right? Let me be clear. The Bible condemns it. Because it's a sin. Because that's not what he created. That was not his intention. You never in the Tanakh see an illustration of two guys or two. You don't see it. It's never reference made to anything like that. Why? Because it didn't happen. It was, I mean, it, it happened, but it was condemned. It was never approved of at all. All right? So, all right. I'm just wanting you to make sure I'm clear on that. All right? I don't want to be wishy-washy here. All right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Listen. So, the New Testament commentary on Genesis 6 affirms the supernatural view that the sons of God having sex with women. Now, the sin, I want to make this clear. The sin of Sodom that Jude is talking about here is not homosexuality. It is interspecies sexuality between angels and humans. I'm not sure what you'd call that. We've got to come up with a name for that. Okay? <laughs> Uh, angel sexual, I don't know what we call it, but okay, that's what he's talking about here. Something very different. Now, you say, well, how can angels, angels can't do that? Well, you remember the story where Abraham and a couple of angels came and visited him? What did he do? Fixed them some food. What did they do with the food? We can't eat that, we're spirit beings. No, they ate it. You say, how do spirit beings eat? I don't know. 
I've never been there, you know, but I, you see them. They manifest. They look like men. Okay, they eat. Obviously, they can have sex, all right? Somehow, the angelic realm has the capacity to take on the appearance of men. Now, Jude doesn't say much about the angel's sin. Why? He didn't, you know, Jude doesn't get into a big description here. Let me explain to you what happened. No, he just kind of throws it out there. Why? Because he's just reminding them of what they already knew. He's assuming these people already knew about the angels that apostatized, the angels that rebelled, the angels that defected. They had heard about it before. Everybody held this view at that time. They knew Genesis 6, and they knew the book of Enoch, the book of the Watchers. Much commentary, ancient and modern, has linked the sin of angels in Jude 2 with Genesis 6, 1-4 through to the sons of God. Why? Because they knew that. That's just what everybody at that time knew. Let me give you a couple of commentaries on this. Barclay, talking about angels. William Barclay, he's a neo-Orthodox. Basically, he's a liberal. Okay, He doesn't believe in miracles, but he's a very good historian. So you, if you want to get some history from stuff, William Barclay is good to get history from. You want to get theology? Don't don't mess with Barclay, okay? Like I said, you know, he says at one point when the Lord walked on water, there was exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. That's liberals, people. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, Barclay says this about angels. He said the Jews had a very highly developed doctrine of angels, and they did. The servants of God. In particular, the Jews believed that every nation had its presiding angel. Where do you think they got that view from? He says, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures, Deuteronomy 32.8, there's our verse, alright, reads, when the Most High divided the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God. See, the translators of the Septuagint they knew what this meant. And so that's how they translated it. This is to say, to each nation there was an angel. Every nation had its own angel. The Jews believed in a fall of angels, and much is said about it in the book of Enoch, which is so often behind the thought of Jew. Alright? Each nation, they had their own angels. So this is Barclay. He's giving you here the Jewish viewpoint on this. Alright? Thomas Schreiner, I love his commentators, commentaries, commenting on Jude 6, he writes this. I'm going to give you a long quote here, but it's, a, it's worth hearing. He says, we can almost, we can be almost certain that Jude referred here to the sin of the angels in Genesis 6, 1-4. The sin of the angels committed according to the Jewish tradition was sexual intercourse with daughters of men. Apparently, Jude also understood Genesis 6, 1-4 in the same way. Three reasons support such a conclusion. First, Jewish tradition consistently understood Genesis 6, 1-4 in this way. This is how everybody saw it, and he lists all these scriptures. They'll, they'll be in the notes. You can't. I, I made them small here, not to take up a lot of room, but there's a lot of references. You can go look them up. This is what the Jews believed. All right. Secondly, he says, we know from Jude 1:14 that Jude was influenced by Enoch. All right? And Enoch goes into great detail about the sin and punishment of these angels. Jude almost certainly would need to explain that he departed from the customary Jewish view of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 if he indeed, if he disagreed with Jewish tradition. He'd have to say, no, I'm not talking about that. Let me explain what I'm talking about. 
He says the brevity of the verse supports the idea that he, he concurred with Jewish tradition. They knew this. Thirdly, the text forces a parallel between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels. The implication is that sexual sin was prominent in both instances. Thomas Schreiner. All right. Jude draws freely from the language and imagery of Enoch. People don't like this, okay? He shouldn't be quoting that book, all right? But the verbal parallels in verse 6 alone are really obvious. Let me show you a few of them. Binding and darkness, we see that in Enoch 10.4. The great day, 1 Enoch 10.6. Abandoning their abode, 1 Enoch 12.4. Reservation in chains, 1 Enoch 54.5, all right? All through Enoch, you're going to see... You know, Jude alludes to these things. Kenneth Wiest writes this. R.K., remember we talked about R.K., they left their first estate. R.K. is used in the book of Enoch, 12.4, of the watchers, angels, who have abandoned their high heaven and their holy eternal place and defiled themselves with women. Alright? So he is connecting R.K. So there's so many connections here with Enoch. Now, Enoch is a non-canonical book. It's not part of the canon. I do not believe it's inspired, but I do believe it is a very, very good commentary on what first century Jews believed. All right? And Peter, we're going to talk about this as we get into this, but Peter obviously thought this book was pretty important because he quotes from it. All right? Directly from it, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. And in Enoch, he has a lot to say about watchers. As a matter of fact, the beginning of Enoch is called the Book of Watchers. And he talks about this sin of cohabitation with the watchers and the daughters of men. Let me just give you one paragraph, one couple verses here from 1 Enoch 6.1. It says, And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them. this sound familiar at all to anybody? Sound like Genesis 6, 1 through 4, lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Alright? The angels, the children of heaven. So, you know, Enoch is clearly saying these, these watchers are supernatural beings. They're angelic beings. Alright? Alright. So in Jude 6, I believe very clearly angels are spirit beings. These spirit beings came to earth, they mated with human women, they produced a hybrid offspring, a half man, half God, which Enoch goes into great detail of these hybrid children. They are, oh man, they, they're called vampires, they, they drink blood, they're killing the population, they can't, the, the people can't feed these things enough and so they're killing everybody, so you know, it's just a horrible situation. They have to be destroyed, and they're destroyed in the flood. Yahweh judged those angels. Talks about them being giants. He judged those angels who did this. He locked them up. They were destroyed in AD 70 at the Great Judgment. They were locked up until AD 70. AD 70, they were destroyed. They're done. Now, when you think about the fall of Israel and the great privilege that they had and they fell from, it's amazing all they saw. We talked about that earlier. All they envisioned. What an incredible fall. But consider the angels. They're fellowshipping around the throne of Yahweh. The watchers, they're there. We see different texts where he's conferring with them. The council is all together. They're serving him and his children. They watch what he does. They watch the creation of the earth. He speaks and they see these things come into being. These planets, this 
solar system. People say there must be other people out there because look at the vastness of the solar system. Why? Yahweh is just saying, you want to see how awesome? You want to see how powerful I am? Look at this. You still can't see all I've created. It goes on and on and on. If there are other people out there, and if they sin, what happens? Does Yahweh come, Yeshua come back again and die for them also? How's that work? No? Well, then, uh, is there atonement made for them? Or No, I think it's for people on earth. I think earth is a privileged planet. That goes back to my geocentricity views. But I think the earth is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around Science has proved that over and over, but they just don't like it. The liberals hate that. We're privileged? No, we're just some dirt clod in the universe. No, we're a privileged planet. And look at this planet is so incredibly designed that we can breathe. We got water. We got all the food. We got everything we need. None of the other planets can sustain life like we can. People want to go to Mars. Go ahead. I got a few people I want to put on that ship, okay? Everybody that's in politics just about, all right? Send them to Mars. Let them colonate up there. Let them get their own planet going, okay? We'll start over down here and we'll do things a little bit differently. Okay, but just think of all these angels saw. They're there. Job 38 tells us that creation, they watched it take place. They watched the power. They, they know that Yahweh created them. And for all the privilege and all the position they had, they fell. And they're judged because of it. And Jude is trying to tell us Yahweh judges apostasy. He's saying, believers, don't leave the faith. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't turn away from the Christian faith because Yahweh judges apostates. He did it for Israel. He did it for the angels. He did it for the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in the future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. Lord, you are an awesome God. Father, I thank you for who you are and that in your grace, you reached out to us, brought us into your family, made us Sons of God. What an incredible privilege. Now we get to fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord. I can understand why the watchers were so jealous when you created mankind. Entered into a covenant with us. They wanted that for themselves, Lord. And I thank you that we get to partake in that fellowship. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful image bearers of you here and now. That the things we say the actions we do portray us as image bearers of Yahweh. Thank you for that privilege, Lord. Amen.